I think one of the most profound verses that communicates the message of Christmas is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And the verse, we'll throw it up here for you guys. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, became poor, so that you through his poverty could become rich. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. And sometimes we'll say, do you? Like, do you? Do I? Do we know the grace? Have you experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus? But think about the Christmas message. He was rich. He's God in heaven. He, he has and said, he can speak things into existence. He's rich. And yet he became poor. And he was the one who was born in a manger. Yet he was the one born to a homeless refugee family. He became poor because why? We were poor. Because we were spiritually dead. Because we are spiritually far from God. So God's like, I will become poor because you are poor and you can now take my place. You can become rich. That I will now clothe you in my righteousness. That Jesus, and this is honestly, if you, this is why we just were called the exchange. It's the fact that God took my place and gave me his. It's the fact that God says, give me your burdens, your addictions. Give me those sin issues, those power issues, those pride issues, those sex issues. Give me all those things. Take, upo- take them upon me. I'll take them upon me and I'll give you mine. I'll give you my righteousness. I love the message of the exchange. It's that God took my place and I take his because of what he's done. You know, my wife and I uh, got into, a, like, there's a season of our life, and we saw them recorded on our TV, but we got into the show called Undercover Boss, right? And it's been on for a long time. And if you've ever seen an episode or never seen an episode, it's basically, there's a big, you know, Fortune 500 companies. We have a CEO or the president of a company, and he wants to really know what's going on in his company. So they'll have, like, an extreme makeover on him. So you have a CEO, president kind of guy, look like an average Joe. He'll take on a new form. And they're like, and sometimes it's really good, like, ooh, it's a different guy. And sometimes, like, this add a mustache. You're like, ah, that's, not, that's obvious. But he'll always usually take on, like, a different form. And then he's working, you know, tell the, they tell the clients or they tell the people who work for him, hey, we're doing this show, and it's about this. And they say it's not about whatever, undercover boss. So they convince them, like, okay, you're going to train him and work with him. And usually, if you've seen the show, they usually meet with, like, two or three employees. They hear their stories. They go from being the CEO president to working, like, the dirty, lowest jobs. I think one was here in Florida with, like, waste management. And they're working, like, in the dirtiest jobs. And then at the end of the show, you know, they take off all the stuff, and they're with the employees and saying, hey, it's me, so-and-so, the CEO of the company. You complained a lot. <laughs> and it's like, ugh, what did I say for my boss? Or it's like, hey, I heard your story. And it's always, I, it's always really powerful. There's one specific story. This single mom opens up to this guy who she doesn't know is the CEO. And she says, you know, there's, we just have endless amount of medical bills for my daughter. And life is, could not be any more difficult. And so he says, hey, thank you for opening up to me about your daughter. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay for all of your medical bills. And he goes, I want to give you some money for a new car because you need to get to work in a timely way. But not only that, and he, this is true, he goes, I'm going to give you $100,000 to add to your house to, to you can buy a home. $100,000 specifically set towards your house. And then he says, and not only that, you need a vacation, so I'm sending you to Europe. <laughs> right? My wife and I are watching this, we're like, it's so beautiful. Like, it's just incredible. You, I can't not watch and not cry. But I love the thought, like, is that not the gospel? That God, the more than a CEO, right, becomes in the form of a man, lives life among us, abused, rejected, neglected, and says, hey, I'm God, by the way, here's heaven. Like, is that not the gospel? Is that not the exchange? That though he was rich, he became poor, so we, through his poverty, could become rich. This is Emmanuel. This is God is with us. And what a beautiful statement that is. What a misunderstood it was 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah. They didn't understand what that meant. But God, literally, they were saying, God will be with you, not figuratively. God will be with you. And so here's what I want to look at today. I want to look at this idea of God with us in three different ways. So I want to look at God with us. I want to look at God with us and God with us. You're like, what? Okay, first thought. So God with us. First thought, in case you're like, that was too confusing. God with us. Jesus is God. Let's just start there. Jesus is God. That is life-changing. This is not just, some, this is not just Messiah who's man. He is literally God. 
God in the flesh. And I've shared this before with our group, but this idea, this, it's the word incarnation. God took on flesh. And we think carne, you know, it's Latin, carne asada, meat. We're like, yes, God took on meat. That's literally what it means. So next time you eat tacos, think of that. God took on meat. God took on flesh. God literally became man. And you can say, where? How, where does it say that? How does it say that? Look at verse 20. Verse 20, it says it this way. At the end of verse 20, it says, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Again, an angel appears to Joseph, and Joseph your betrothed wife, who you're not married to yet, who've not slept with, yes, yes, she is pregnant, and just, I want you to be comfortable and confident that it's not from another man, it's from God himself. Because it says in, when Joseph started to, like, kind of consider these things, it's like, hey, just know this. We put your heart at peace and at rest, that this is God. And so it couldn't be more clear that what is in Mary is God, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Then, in verse 23, we'll look on, but this verse can be more clear. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then he says, listen, this, this one who's, who's going to be born goes back to Isaiah, goes back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Matthew, being a Jew, would know this verse, but he would have known this verse in a different context. And I want you to see something, because this, is, this really is incredible to me. It would have been so hard for first century Jews to believe that the Messiah was God. Let's not assume, like, we're super advanced in 2017. We're, we're much more further along than them. We think, oh, it's hard for us to believe that Jesus is God. It would have been harder for them to believe that Jesus is God as a first century Jew than it is for us. Understand, and yet they believed. And yet thousands of Orthodox Jews became believers in the Jewish Messiah who is God in the flesh. Matthew pulls back from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and saying, we once thought this would be a great leader who figuratively God was with us. He was with us through this great leader, but he's saying, no, he's going to actually, it's literally that God will be with us, that this son will be God with us in the flesh. And again, I think that's so interesting because we live in a time where people go, I don't understand, I wrestle, like right, I wrestle with the idea of the virgin birth. How do Christians still believe in the virgin birth? How do you still believe that? And here's what's interesting to me. When I talk to people who kind of have this thought, and it's like, how do you believe in the virgin birth? I, and I try to use this argument from the greater to the lesser. I try to use the I thought of this. Well, listen, if, if God created the universe, if God spoke the universe into existence, the virgin birth is pretty easy for me to accept. If God created everything and he created the ways that the laws of nature work and all that works, if God created everything, the virgin birth is a cinch. You're like, well, I don't believe God created everything. I'm like, well, you have a bigger problem then. Because what created the universe? Matter does not just create matter. Matters not just pop into existence. So you're saying out of chaos came beauty, out of chaos came order. I'm saying out of beauty came beauty, out of order came order. So for me, I try to go, okay, fine, you don't believe in the virgin birth, and who, you know, so you try to work your way back to that. And it's like, okay, well, maybe God did create everything. And it's like, so is it hard to believe in the virgin birth? Well, maybe not, not as much now. But you try to work your way with that. Now, I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this and writes about the, the incarnation, calls it the greatest, like the greatest mystery and the greatest miracle that happened. And I love how he describes this. He goes, if there is a God, if there's, and he obviously believes there's a God, but like, if there is a God, there's absolutely no way man could ever find him. And he gives an illustration. It's like, what are we going to do? Get in a plane and fly over the oceans and seas and islands? Like, oh my gosh, there's God below. Do you see him? Get him. Like, we're never going to find God. Whether we look within or look to outer space, we're never going to go, there he is. Ah, oh, you've been hiding, God. Found you. Like, that's not going to happen. If there is a God, God would have to choose to reveal himself. God would have to desire, I want to make myself known. And then the question is, how would he do that? How would he go about that? And the message of the Christian gospel is so unique. We're not saying God is just speaking to one person or one prophet here or there throughout history. We're saying God made himself flesh. We're saying that God made himself tangible. God's saying, let me not just speak to one or two prophets over the you know, ages. Let me become someone that you can see and touch and handle and watch firsthand. And that is mind-blowing. And that changes everything about how you and I live life. 
You see, when people say, I can't believe in miracles, I can't believe Jesus fed 5,000, I can't believe he walked on water, I can't believe the, the death of one man forgives everyone. I love what this guy named J.I. Packer says. He writes, it is from misbelief, or at least inadequate belief, about the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. Think about that. People are like, I can't believe in miracles. I can't believe God would do this. And if you can say, hey, when you can fully grasp the incarnation, that God who created order and matter and time, when God entered into that himself, it's not hard for him to kind of break his own laws that he created. He can. He's God. And he says this changes everything we know. Once we grasp the incarnation, once we grasp this understanding, it will change how we view God and view life itself. And let me just say this, because this is what it means for us now. So practically in 2017, what does this do for us? So when I say Jesus is God, like, oh, great theology, but what does this do for us? How does this change us? Like, how does the fact that Jesus is God shape everything about our lives? And if I could just, like, spend some thoughts on this briefly, we have to understand that Jesus claimed to be God. Others viewed him as God. Like, think about, this is not just something Matthew's saying, Paul said this in the book of Colossians. Peter said this. John said this. Remember when Thomas saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and what does he say? He goes, my Lord and my God in John 20, 28. At that point in time, Jesus can be like, whoa, Thomas, you got it wrong. I'm a pretty good person, but I'm not God. But no, he receives that worship. He receives that praise. And so Jesus fully is God in every way imaginable. Here's what this means for us today now. Why does that matter? Why does that change us? If Jesus is God, listen, you must have an extreme response. And this needs to sink in a little bit. If Jesus is God, you cannot be indifferent about that. If Jesus is not God, you cannot be indifferent about that. The point is, if God entered earth, if God entered time, think about Jesus' life on earth. Was there really, do you ever read people that were like kind of indifferent? It's usually like, let's throw him off the cliff. Let's kill him. Let's worship him. There is these great extremes when people encounter Jesus. There wasn't this like indifference, like, oh, he's a pretty good guy. I'm inspired by his teaching that he is, you know, that I must eat his body and drink his blood to live forever. I'm pretty inspired by that. Like, no, like Jesus said and did things that were so controversial that's like either we kill him or we worship him. And so the point is this. We must have an extreme response to God. I feel like so long in my Christian life, there was just kind of this indifference, and God had to go, no, listen, if, if, I, if Jesus, if Jesus, my son, is truly God, your life cannot be just indifferent about him anymore. There had to, I, I really do feel like I have more respect for those who are angry and mad at God than th- for those who are just indifferent. For those who are angry or mad or bitter and they're set, let's say, okay, well, let's talk. Because I feel like you're on the verge of going from one extreme to the other about, about this person of Jesus that maybe you misunderstand. But for the church, and the sad part of me is, like, in the, within the church, there's sometimes this indifference about Jesus. It's like, well, I, I love him. He's, he's good. I, I appreciate him. But it's like, but are you passionate about him? Is your life fully lived for him? We cannot be indifferent anymore. Amen? If Jesus is God, that changes how we live for him today. The message of the gospel becomes so much more meaningful. Because we believe there's a God who comes near. We believe there's a God who says, go, pursue, win. We can't be like, well, there's people who don't know God and they're going to hell. Oh, well. Has but go. That must break our heart. That must send us. Will we fail? Will we make mistakes? Of course. But the whole point of the gospel is saying, don't look to us as Christians. Look to Jesus who's our Savior. That's the point. We're not trying to pretend that we're all a bunch of good people here. We're just broken people who say, look at Jesus. He's so good. And that's what we're trying to share with this world. So uh, the whole idea of God with us, Jesus is God. Now, here's the second thought. God with us, he's with us. That means he became one of us. He walked among us, amongst us. There's extremes sometimes within the church where you can focus only on Jesus' divinity or only focus on his humanity, and we're trying to embrace both. That Jesus is also fully man. And that just, that just does something that is, so, like, be- that is so beautiful to me. I love thinking about the fact that Jesus is fully man. Let's just consider this for a second. 
Would you agree that how God came to earth matters? That how God came in the fashion he came, it actually says a lot about God. And think about this, like if, if I were God, and thank God I'm not, but if I were God, I don't know if I'd be like, hey, this is a really good idea. We should make sure the Messiah is born where like no one can see him. <laughs> like in the fields with like shepherds who no one respects. Like if, if I'm God, I'm going to let him be in a palace with the most influential people, men and women, the CEOs, the presidents, let them see them. We'll just stop the sun for a little bit and kind of point, hey, the Messiah is here, world, you should look. Like I, we would do this in a really dramatic and drastic way, and yet God doesn't. And yet God does it in such a humble, unique way, and I think that says a lot about God. God's like, no, he'll be born to a family that's on the run, that's homeless, that's a refugee in another area, in a manger with feeding trough where animals feed out of. That's where my God will be born. That's where my son, God, will be born. And what does that say about God? You know, because if, if he was born in a palace, the people who would need him most wouldn't have access to him. You see, I'm so thankful Jesus was born in a manger because I'm dirty, because I'm unclean, because I can go to him. I have access to him, that he was born a dirty, like, sometimes in the Hallmark movies, we can, like, romanticize the birth of Jesus, where Mary has makeup on, she's, like, smiling, holding Jesus, and there's donkeys, and there's three little mice singing, oh, holy night, and, like, it's really, like, wow, that's so beautiful, and yet it's, like, blood tears crying everywhere, right? Like, it, sometimes we can romanticize it, but when you think about it, it's like, hey, I'm going to do this in a part of the world, in an <laughs> unforeseen area where people aren't going to notice, where there's not going to be lights, camera, action. It's going to be very humble. And so I'm so thankful that Jesus can relate to the lowest of low and the highest of high because he's God. So the fact that God became a man and he can relate to the most common person, homeless person on the street, Jesus is like, yeah, that was me. And the people who go, well, they're so, they have so much in this world, they have everything. He's like, well, I can relate to that because I have everything. Like, he can relate to everyone in between that. I love that about our God. You see, what it says about this is God with us is, is it says that God knows us. He understands us. He's walked with us. What a beautiful thing to be reminded of during Christmas. This is, a, this is just, matter of fact, every year for people, it's a painful time. You know, we're away from family, you're away from family, loved ones are not with us. This is just a painful time. And this is when we're reminded of Jesus' humanity, that he goes, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have your best friend die. I know what it's like to have not have your, your prayers answered. Father, if there's any way this can pass from me, I know, I know what it's like to feel like God has left you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know what it's like to feel those things. I know what it's like to go through the things that you think no one else can understand. There's, there's something about going through something with someone who's gone through the same thing. There just is. You know, at the, yes, we as Christians, sometimes we just need to be quiet when people grieve and just listen and just hear and just be patient and kind. But when you know someone has gone through something traumatic and you're going through something traumatic, sometimes you just want to get together and you just want to talk and you want to say, hey, I need help. How did you process this? How did you go through this? And Jesus is like, hey, I can do that with you. Because I know what it's like, to, again, to have that best friend die, to feel abandoned by God, to not have prayers answered. I know what that's like. And I'm with you in this. And it speaks of the humanity of Jesus in such a unique way, that he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. That we have, we have a God who goes, I get it more than you think, more than you know that, that I do. I get it in a deeper way than you realize. There's this woman author, writer from uh, the 18th, 19th, or 20th century, 1800s, whatever. <laughs> but her name was Dorothy Sayers, and she wrote, she used to be, write poetry and different things. She, she wrote this. She says, We'll put up here, it's a very long quote. I know, bear with me. You're like, oh my gosh, these guys' quotes. She writes, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. And he says, like, but, but he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. 
When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. What is so unique about Christianity is we say, no, our God knows what it takes to have courage. What God, like, because God put himself in such a state of humility. God had to show courage. God had to suffer. What other God were religions suffered? We literally say, our God actually, who created this universe and created it good, and we perverted it, and we tainted it, and we ruined it, God decided to subject himself to that creation and to suffer alongside with us. It's not just like he's in heaven going, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. He's like, no, I went through that. We serve a God who can relate to us in such a unique way. I'm so thankful for the incarnation, amen? The fact that God became man and and remained fully God and fully man at the same time. What a beautiful mystery. We serve a God who's fully God and fully man. And why does that matter? Let me just point this. Why does it matter that he's both fully God and fully man? Here's what, I I love this thought. If you have, if you have an issue, right, between two parties and you want a mediator, and maybe this is sometimes not like, don't think always law, but think of the idea of you have a family at odds with each other. And you go, why is this person so angry? And why is this person so hurt? And what's going on here? And there's, there's these odds. And you have a mediator come in. The, the idea of a mediator is this. A mediator needs to know both parties intimately well. A mediator says, I can know you and I know you. And let me bridge that gap. See, what's interesting about a mediator to me is that Jesus, fully God, can say, I can satisfy the divine wrath of God. And as a man, I can stand in place of man and take that wrath. That he is fully God to say, I understand this divine wrath that needs to be poured out because sins need to be judged. But I'm also a man and I can bear the sin and I can bear the judgment. You say, what I love about the fact, and it's interesting if you just, we'll get into this next point actually. He is God, he is man, but he's God with us. And so let's think about that. He's not just God, he's not just man, but he's also with us. You know, when you study the Old Testament and read about different encounters people had with God, think about Abraham. God came to Abraham as a smoking furnace, okay? God came to the nation of Israel, led them by a pillar of fire. With Job, it was like a tornado or hurricane. With Moses, Moses like, I want to see you, God. God's like, you can't, you'll die. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and you can kind of see my like, afterglory. You can kind of see part of that. Moses comes back, and his face is shining. Like, ah, oh, Moses, get away. No one's really ever encountered God. It's, it's too bright, it's too beautiful, it's too brilliant, it's too glorious, right? And then here's this idea that God now comes on the scene, and he comes as a baby. And what an approachable person as a baby. <laughs> no one, no, nothing is more approachable as a baby, right? Like everyone, even for like a, a mean person, you're like, oh, let me hold you and hug you. Like, here's what's interesting to me. God came throughout different times as fire, as smoke, as earthquake, as wind, and he's like, let me come as a baby, approachable. This unapproachable God is now made approachable. What if Moses was just there for that? He's like, wait, I was begging for the glory. I got like a little after glory, but John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the fact that we actually can behold the glory of God. Like Moses, like, I longed for that. I wanted that. I wanted to see the glory of God, and you get to in the face of Jesus. The fact that he is God with us, that he tabernacled, he, he pitched his tents down here, said, I want to be here with you. I'll make my home here with you. That he's God who is with us. So again, it, not just God, not just man, but he's still, he's still with us. He's, he's still Emmanuel. He's not God was with us. He's God with us. He's still with us right now. And what an appropriate thing that we need to hear in a season where you go, where's God? Where, where's, my fam- where's my friends? Where's the- I'm, alone- I'm lonely. This is so difficult. And God's like, I'm with you. You know, I love the story of Elijah when he, you know, he's in that mountain and he's hiding and he's like kind of being like a wimp about some things. And then, you know, there's like a mountain, there's like a wind and there's an earthquake and fire. There's all these crazy things that like God was not in that. God was not in that. God was not in that. And then God's in a still small voice, right? But why? Why was he not in those b- big and loud things, but he's in that still small voice? Because the point is he's near. Because he can whisper and we can hear because he's here. 
It's not that he needs to make some big monumental thing happen. He can whisper because he's right here. We serve God who's with us. What a beautiful thought that God is with us. If you felt alone at all in the last 24 hours or 48 hours or maybe the next couple days, know that God is with you. Know that he not was Emmanuel, he is Emmanuel. He's still with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do we believe that though? Do we believe that Jesus is with us? That he hasn't left us or forsaken us? Jesus is with us. Now here's the, here's the question. How do we respond to this? How do, you, how do we hear a message that Jesus is God, he's man, he's with us? And we go, okay, goodbye, gr- you know, have a great Christmas. Like, how do we respond to that? You know, the, the Christmas songs we played earlier, and it's funny, just, I don't know if you like, go to a Starbucks, you know, like, hear a Christmas song, like, ah, oh, this is so good. And, like, it's like super rich and deep theology, and people are like, I said two shots, and like yelling, like, ah. But like, we're hearing some great stuff about Jesus around, and people are like angry and mad. And I don't know if you've ever just, just stopped and listened to some of the lyrics of these, these fabulous Christ- this, uh, Christmas songs. But one of my, my favorite is Oh Holy Night, and, and it is the part when he goes, fall on your knees. Hear the angels' voices. How do, we respond, how do you respond to God? Again, it can't be indifferent. It just can't. You either must hate him or you must fully embrace him and love him. We don't really have another option. Because when somebody who claims to be God and says, I can, you know, somebody who claims the things Jesus said, and if he's not that, we should really run away from that. Or we should fully embrace that and love that. I think the only way to respond is to fall on our knees. Say, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You are with the God who's with us. I need you. I believe in you. You know, Hebrews talks about today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. I mean, if God is speaking, we can't say, oh, he's he's speaking, maybe he's speaking. I can't really tell. Do not harden your heart. If God is speaking to you, say, be right with me. I want to be right with you. The whole reason Jesus came was to save you and me from our sins. And can I tell you, that's not just my, like, I sin, I I sinned, I'm sinning, I will sin. And I need, I needed Jesus, I need Jesus, I will need Jesus. Like, constantly need Jesus. Not like I graduated from sin, like, oh, I sinned, like, back in the day. Like, no, like, I constantly need this. I constantly need this this Jesus as my Savior. You know, here's something I want to leave this thought with, and we're going to end with some worship and and communion in a second, but here's a thought I want to leave you with. And please listen. Jesus' mission on earth was he came to die. Like, let me just please be really clear. Think about Confucius or Muhammad or Buddha or some sort of religious guru. Let me just say this. Think about this. Death stopped their mission. The message they were communicating, what they were trying to train and disciple their students with, please hear this, death stopped their mission. Their mission was postponed in a sense. It was done. It was, it was ended because death ended it. But what's interesting about Jesus is death was mission accomplished. Jesus came to die. Death did not stop Jesus. Do we get that? It's not like, oh, Jesus died. Darn it. His mission ended. It's like, no, yes, his mission was fulfilled. That little baby in a manger with those cute little hands with bare nails one day. The feet that you hold and play with, they would walk up to Calvary and bear the cross. The baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, just wrapped around his body, would have a spear stuck through his side and blood and water would flow out to say, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. You see, Jesus' mission was to die. It was, death did not interrupt his mission. Death interrupts everyone's life, right? When death happens, you go, no, no, this shouldn't have happened. Yet for Jesus, death was mission accomplished. This is why he was born. And so for us, when we think of the incarnation of God becoming a man, we have to remember why, to die so we could be with him. Because when we die, we will be with him. You know, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live. Do you believe this? He asked that. Do you believe this? And I just, I feel like that's just so personal. Do you believe this? Do you believe that if you die, you will live because of what Christ has done? That he came to die? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion in just a second. But here's what I want to say. I'm not going to talk. You're, you're going to get communion, and they're going to be playing worship. 
I'm going to say, as you take it, remember why he came. Remember by his stripes we are healed. Remember that his body was broken for us so we could be brought into the body of Christ. Remember these things, celebrate these things. If you're not a believer, you can let, pass, you can let communion just pass in front of you and hand it off, and that's okay. But if you hear this message today and you believe and go, I want to believe this, you can, take, you can remember something you believe. Because if you believe right now, you can remember it right now. And if you want to take communion, say, I believe this. I believe his body was broken for me. I believe his blood was shed for my sins. So I could, then take it. But this is a time for the church. Remember this little baby, who, God, who came to earth in the form of a baby and lived this sinless life remembering the, f- the fact of why he came. It was to die. And, and his mission was accomplished upon death and his resurrection. That death could not hold him and death could not hold us because he, Jesus rose and we will rise. And let's celebrate that. Yes, take some careful examination in your heart and my heart, but let's celebrate that. This is not necessarily going to be like some sad time. We can go, Jesus, thank you that you died, that you rose again so I can also live. So you're going to take communion. They're going to pass it out. You take it when you're ready. Take it at your seat. We'll have some worship going on. Pray. Take the communion and pray over it. Talk to God. Thank him. Take communion. I'm going to come back up here, and we'll just close this out in prayer, okay? So our guys, you can come forward. We're going to worship a little bit. Worship. Take communion as you feel led.